نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله عليه وسلم يا ايها الذين امنوا اتقوا الله حق تقاته ولا تموتن الا وانتم مسلمون يا ايها الناس اتقوا ربكم الذي خلقكم من نفس واحده خلق منها زوجها وبث منهما رجالا كثيرا ونساء واتقوا الله الذي تساءلون به والارحام ان الله كان عليكم رقيبا يا ايها الذين امنوا اتقوا الله وقولوا قولا سديدا يصلح لكم اعمالكم ويغفر لكم ذنوبكم ومن يطع الله ورسوله فقد فاز فوزا عظيما اما بعد فان اصدق الحديث كتاب الله وخير الهدي هدي محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم وشر الامور محدثاتها وكل محدثه بدعه وكل بدعه ضلاله وكل ضلاله في النار we continue with the sisters classes in which we cover the tafsir of surah al-fatiha and matters of jurisprudence connected to the woman and benefits from the biographies of the wives of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam in the last class we was covering we were covering some points from the works of Sheikh al-Islam Ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah ta'ala in which he was describing characteristics of the people of the book the Jews and the Christians those whom we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala not to guide us to their paths rather we want to be guided to the straight path the path of those whom Allah's favors upon we come to the matter of bina'ul masajid ala al-qubur qala Allah ta'ala قَالَ الَّذِينَ غَلَبُوا عَلَىٰ أَمْرِهِمْ لَنَتَّخِذَنَّ عَلَيْهِمْ مَسْجِدًا 
building masajid upon the graves. This is from the characteristics of the people of the book. Allah Ta'ala, He stated, And those who have overwhelmed them in their affair, they said, We will take and erect a masjid over them. Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah ta'ala he mentions ثُمَّ إِنَّ هَذَا قَذِبْتُولِيَا بِهِ كَثِيرٌ مِنْ هَذِهِ الْأُمَّةِ مَعَ نَهِ النَّبِيِّ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمُ That this is surely something that many from this ummah have been tested with and afflicted with, even though there is the prohibition of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam against this matter. Hatta fi waqti dunya Even at the time when he Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam was leaving this worldly life, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam forbade us from building masjids over the graves. When the Prophet ﷺ was on his deathbed, he said, Allah عَلَى الْيَهُودِ وَالنَّصَارَى اِتَّخَضُوا كَبُورَ أَنْبِيَائِهِمْ مَسَاجِدْ That the curse of Allah is upon the Jews and the Christians because they took the graves of their prophets as places of worship. And this is something that is not allowed in Islam. For the foundation of Islam is La ilaha illallah. None has the right to be worshipped except for Allah. And it is not allowed for us to build masjids over graves or to bury people inside of masjids. This is not allowed. Because this could lead to grave worship. So the Prophet ﷺ mentioned this on his deathbed, warning the Muslims against that which the previous nations fell into, of taking the graves of the righteous, of prophets, and turning them into places of worship. You have, unfortunately, from some Muslims, they have ignored this prohibition. And they have buried individuals who they honor inside of masajid. Or erected masajid over the graves of people. And the Prophet ﷺ forbade us from praying in a masjid where there is a grave. We are not allowed to even make salat in graveyards other than the janazah prayer. In the janazah prayer, there is no bowing and there is no prostration. But as for the regular salat, one is not allowed to pray the salat at the graveyard. 
Why? Because if one was to see this individual praying the regular salat in the graveyard, one may get the impression that the person who is praying is worshiping the grave. So that door has to be closed. So we are prohibited from praying in graveyards, let alone praying in a masjid that has a grave inside of it. Some may say, well, the Prophet Muhammad's grave is in his masjid in Medina. The response is that the Prophet is not buried in his masjid in Medina, nor is his masjid uh, over his grave. The area where the Prophet is buried in, he is buried in his home. When the Prophet Muhammad died, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he died in the home of Aisha radiallahu anha. And the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he mentioned that the Prophets are buried where they die. The Prophets are buried where they die. So he died in his home, the home of Aisha radiallahu anha, so he was buried there. And Aisha radiallahu anha, there was a separation made in, that, in her place from where the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa was buried because later on, Abu Bakr radiallahu an was buried next to the Prophet sallallahu and Umar ibn Khattab radiallahu an also was buried next to the Prophet sallallahu and Abu Bakr. So there's, there was a partition made or a separate area made to separate between her home and the place that they were buried so that she's not falling into the prohibition of praying where people are buried. So this is from Aisha radiallahu anha. Prohibiting, uh, protecting herself from falling into the prohibition of praying where there are graves. So the Prophet sallallahu was buried into his home or buried in his home. And in the time of the Prophet sallallahu the doors of the homes of the Prophet sallallahu were connected to the masjid, meaning where the Prophet can come out of his home and step into the masjid. But his house is separate from the masjid, even though is connected. And as the time went on, when the masjid was being expanded, they did not expand in the area of the house of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Rather in the other directions the, the masjid of the Prophet ﷺ was expanded.
with some, they say, well, if you go to Medina, you see the erection of a building, and then it's as if it's under the Prophet Wasallam's masjid. The way it is built is actually a separate entity. It's a separate entity. So no one can use this situation to justify building masajid over graves or burying people inside of masjids. Both are wrong. When the Prophet ﷺ came to Medina and he wanted to build a masjid and some land was given to him to build a masjid. The land that was given to the Prophet ﷺ to build a masjid was a graveyard of the polytheists. What did the Prophet do? Those graves were dug up and the bodies were removed to another place and then the masjid was built upon that land. The Prophet ﷺ did not build the masjid over the graves. Again, cutting off any road that can lead to shirk. This was the first masjid ever built? No. Okay. No, no, no. It wasn't the first masjid ever built. Okay. Masjid al-Aqsa was built prior, as well as um, the Kaaba was built prior to the Prophet's masjid. Okay. No. When the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was in Mecca prior to him migrating to Medina, he used to pray in the area of the Kaaba but facing Jerusalem, facing Masjid al-Aqsa. So these two masjids were already uh, built, or these two places of worship were already built. So the point is that from the ways of the people of the book, is building places of worship over graves. And these individuals have fallen into grave worship, worshiping the inhabitants in the graves. And this is not allowed in Islam. And the Prophet mentioning this on his deathbed is an indication of the seriousness of this matter because this is like his parting words. He's about to die and this is the last things that he is saying to his nation. May the curse of Allah be upon the Yahud and the Nasara for them taking the graves of their prophets as places of worship. And this is a warning against going to the grave of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and worshipping him. No one has the right to be worshipped except for Allah. Not even the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam shares in that matter. Worship is solely for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, as Allah alone is the creator of the heavens and the earth and that which is between him. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone is the provider. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone is the giver of life and the one who causes death. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone is the one who controls the affairs in the universe. 
So being that Allah is alone in these things, then when it comes to worship, Allah is also to be alone in our worship of Him, subhanahu wa ta'ala. Another characteristic of the people of the book that we find that some Muslims have fallen into is worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala by way of music and singing. This is a practice of the people of the past. And some Muslims, unfortunately, have fallen into this error. You find Muslims listening to music accompanied with singing and the beautifying of the voice to go along with the music for the purpose of rectification of the heart. Singing and music and the beautification of one's voice along with music does not rectify the heart. Rather, that which rectifies the heart is the Book of Allah, the Qur'an. And one should listen to the Qur'an abundantly. Because when listening to the Qur'an uh, abundantly, this is going to have an effect upon your heart. This is a means of strengthening your heart and purifying your heart. And reading the Qur'an. Yes, there, are, there is some poetry that is allowed in Islam. But even in that, one should not be excessive when it comes to listening to poetry. And poetry meaning without the accompanying of mu without it being accompanied with musical instruments, just poetry, and poetry that does not entail uh, words of indecency and lewdness and the likes. Poetry, poetry that does not entail uh, disbelief in Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. Yes, it is allowed for one to say poetry or to listen to poetry, but not in abundance. And not for the purpose of rectifying your heart. Because now, if a person is listening to the poetry for the purpose of rectifying his heart, this takes him away from the Qur'an, which Allah has sent down for the rectification of the hearts. But you have as an example, amongst the people of Tasawwuf, the Sufis, you have them... In some of their gatherings, they are beating on the drums and they are chanting. This has taken place uh, in many places in the Muslim world. You find the Sufis, they are doing this in many places. And they do this in place of the recitation of the Qur'an or listening to the Qur'an. So now this becomes the practice. The beating of the drums and the chanting of Allah's names and other than that 
which they have in their groups. And this is like the main worship with them now. Something that is mandated. You can't do without it. You are in need of this as some of the Sufis and specifically the Tijaniya, they have uh, a dhikr that they call uh, Salat al-Fatih. And they say that reading this one time is better than reading the Qur'an 6,000 or 60,000 times. So look at how they have replaced the Qur'an with the reading of this dhikr that is connected to their group. But this comes from the people of the book. This is from their ways. Using singing and music as a means of rectifying the hearts and as a means of worship. This is not allowed in Islam. That which we use to rectify our hearts is the reading of the Quran and the study of the religious of the religion and practicing what we know being religious. Muhammad we continue with matters of jurisprudence connected to the affairs of the woman. We come to the topic of the mannerisms of relieving oneself. From the beauty of Islam, Islam is a complete way of life. And everything that we are in need of in our daily lives and that which is relevant to us for our hereafter, Islam addresses it. As Allah Azza wa Jal, He mentions, Al-Yawma akmaltu lakum deenakum wa atmaltum alaykum ni'mati wa raditu lakum islam adina. This day, I have perfected for you, or I have completed for you, your religion. And I have perfected my favor upon you. And I am pleased for you, Islam, as a religion for you. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala He states that he has completed the religion and he perfected it. So our way of life is a complete perfect way of life. Covering all aspects that we are in need of. 
And Allah He mentions وَنَزَّمْنَا عَلَيْكَ الْكِتَابِ تِبْيَانًا لِكُلِّ شَيْءٍ وَهُدًا وَرَحْمَةً وَبُشْرًا لِلْمُسْلِمِينَ And we have revealed upon you the book clarifying all matters and a guidance and a mercy and glad tidings for the Muslims. So Allah has described the Qur'an as being a book that has clarified everything. And it is a guidance, and it is a mercy, and it is glad tidings for the Muslims. One may say, how does the Qur'an clarify everything? Meaning everything that we are in need of. Everything that the Muslim is in need of in his or her daily life, that which is the Muslim is in need of in relation to one's belief system, that which the Muslim is in need of when it comes to how to worship Allah, that which one is in need of when it comes to mannerisms, your behavior, your character, that which one is in need of when it comes to your dealings with people, business-wise and other than that. This has been explained in the Qur'an, either directly, specifically, or in general, you have a text, and then the details are found in the Sunnah. Because in the Qur'an, Allah directs us to follow the Prophet So whatever we don't find in details in the Qur'an, in the Qur'an we find Allah commanding us to take what the Messenger has given us, and there we will find the details. So in any event, the Qur'an clarifies all things. And a Jew came to Salman al-Farisi radiallahu anhu and he stated to him allamakum nabiyyukum kulla shay'in hatta al-khara'a qala Salman ajal The Jew, he said to Salman and Pharisee, that your prophet has taught you everything, even the mannerisms of how to use the bathroom. And Salman, he responded, indeed, he has. So here is an acknowledgement from a Jew that the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam taught the Muslims everything they needed to know, even when it comes to the mannerisms of using the bathroom or relieving yourself. The first matter, my noble sisters, is that when you go to relieve yourself, that you should do so in privacy and not expose your 
your private parts to the people. And in the time of the Prophet wasallam, there were no bathrooms as we know today. So what used to be done when one had to relieve himself or herself, the person would go far out from the sight of the people and relieve themselves in that area where no one sees them. We have the narration on the authority of Jabir ibn Abdullah radiallahu anhuma where he stated خرجنا مع رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم في السفر وكان رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم لا يأتي البراز حتى يغيب فلا يرى جابر بن عبد الله He said, we went out with the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam on a journey. And the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam did not relieve himself until he distanced himself and became unseen by the people. Meaning he would go out to an area where no one can see him, then he would relieve himself. The Prophet Sallallahu was not one who would just relieve himself in the presence of the people and expose his privates to the sight of the people. And this is also a practice of the woman in the time of the Prophet Sallallahu that when they had to relieve themselves, they will go out to the area that's known for relieving themselves. But they will go out covered and then they will go to that area and relieve themselves. Alhamdulillah, in our time, we have private bathrooms and the likes. So when a woman has to relieve herself, she goes to the bathroom and closes the door and doesn't expose her privates to the sight of the people. Even a woman, it is not allowed for a woman to look at the private parts of another woman, and it's not allowed for a man to look at the private parts of another man. So you, you unfortunately you find sometimes, like in male bathrooms, males will just come out and relieve themselves in the open right next to another male, exposing his privates to another male. And this is, in, this is inappropriate and this is not allowed in Islam. One must, when you go into the bathrooms and you have stalls, go into the stall and close the door behind you and relieve yourself in those areas. Don't relieve yourselves in the urinals that are open. For number one, your privates are exposed. And number two, 
protecting yourself from the urine splashing upon you. But the woman, they must not be lax in this affair, for it's not allowed for the woman to show her privates to another woman. And this is the general rule. As for when they go for checkups in the lights, this is something different. Where the woman, she has her female doctor and she is exposing herself for a checkup. That's something different when it's not speaking about that affair. The next point. When one goes to relieve themselves. There is a dua that is made. One says, Bismillah, Allahumma inni a'udhu bika min al-khubuthi wal-khaba'if. Again, Bismillah, Allahumma inni a'udhu bika min al-khubuthi wal-khaba'if. One more time, Bismillah, Allahumma inni a'udhu bika min al-khubuthi wal-khaba'ith. In the name of Allah, O Allah, I seek refuge with you from the male and the female jinns. As the places where one relieves oneself, these are places that are frequented, frequented by the jinn. So, one seeks the protection from Allah from the harm of the jinn. And there is a narration where the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam mentioned. سَطْرُ مَا بَيْنَ أَعْيُنِ الْجِنِّ وَأَوْرَاتِ بَنِي آدَمِ إِذَا دَخَلَ أَحَدُهُمُ الْخَلَاءِ أَنْ يَقُولَ بِسْمِ اللَّهِ The covering which is between the eyes of the jinn and the privates of the children of Adam when one of them enters into the area to relieve oneself is that the person says Bismillah. And this narration has been authenticated by some of the scholars of hadith, from them, Shaykh al-Albani, rahimahullah ta'ala. What the narration means that when a person goes to relieve himself or herself, the way you protect your privates from the jinn looking at you is that you say Bismillah. Once you say Bismillah, a screen or barrier is placed to where the jinn can no longer see your privates or they cannot see your privates. Once the person says this,
it is befitting that one sits down when relieving oneself. Yes, it's recommended. Yes, it's definitely recommended. It's allowed for a man uh, to stand in urine, but there are conditions. As the Prophet ﷺ was seen standing and he was relieving himself. However, when one stands to relieve himself, number one, one's privates should not be exposed. Number two, one should not use, uh, stand in urine and then the urine is splashing back on him. Because this is something that can lead a person to being punished in his, his or her grave. The Prophet wasallam he passed by the grave of two individuals and said that indeed, these two individuals are being punished for something that is big and great. But it is not big and great. He said one of them did not protect himself from the urine coming on his clothing. And the other one used to go about spreading gossip and tales causing conflict between the people. So the Prophet وسلم, took a leaf from a date palm tree and then broke it in half and stuck it in their graves and made dua that Allah lightened their punishment as long as these leaves did not dry up. The point here, one of them, he did not protect himself from the urine splashing upon him or getting on his clothing. So if one is going to stand up, one must be mindful that the urine is not splashing back on his clothing. And when one sits, this lessens the possibility of the urine getting on the clothing. So if one is standing and urinating and there is no way to stop the urine from splashing on the clothing except to sit, then you have to sit. You have to sit. In this case, it will become mandatory upon you to sit so that you do not fall into that prohibition of the urine falling upon your garments. Also, you find the Mashiach, they mention that when you stand in urine, you should, not, you should urine in an area where the ground is not hard. And that goes back to the urine splashing upon the individual. And he should not urine until, uh, when he's standing urine, he should not urine and there's a strong wind. Uh, because that, the wind will splat, the wind will blow the urine onto yourself or other than that. So, yes, it is allowed for a person to stand in urine, but one must be mindful of these other affairs of not exposing oneself and the urine not getting on one's clothing. 
the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam when he would relieve himself the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam he would sit and get close to the ground as we have in the narration on the authority of Abdullah bin Umar radiallahu anhuma أن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم كان إذا أراد الحاجة لا يرفع ثوبه حتى يدنو من الأرض. عبد الله بن عمر he stated that the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم whenever he wanted to relieve himself he would not raise up his garment until he drew near to the ground. and that has two benefits one not exposing your privates to anyone just in case there's someone around so you get down to the ground and then you lift your garment up and two sitting sitting and when one sits uh, to relieve oneself especially in the old style toilets meaning they have the holes in the floor it's easier upon you for your bowels to move you know, then the, the actual toilets that we have. The other one, the, the, a low toilet to wear, where you're sitting, your lower end is that is down, it's alhamdulillah, it makes it easy for your, your bowels to move. And there are benefits um, in sitting and relieving oneself. Um, but again, when it comes to the men, it is allowed for a man to stand uh, in urine and answering your question with being mindful of those other things. Another point, and this is when one is out in the open, that when you relieve yourself, you should not face Mecca, nor turn your back towards Mecca, if you're outside of Mecca. And you don't face the Qibla, you don't face the place, the direction of prayer. We have the narration on Abu Ayyub al-Ansari عن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم قال إذا أتيتم الغائط فلا تستقبلوا القبلة ولا, تستدبر ولا تستدبروها ولكن شرقوا أو غربوا Abu Ayyub al-Ansari, he mentioned that the Prophet sallallahu stated that when you go to relieve yourselves, to move your bowels, don't face the Qibla, nor turn your back to the Qibla. Rather, put it to your right or to your left. And there's a, a discussion as to whether this applies to when one is indoors. And inshallah ta'ala in the next class we'll go to that. But certainly when one is outdoors, one should not face the direction of Mecca when you relieve yourself, whether urinating or defecating. 
And one should not turn his or her back towards Mecca if you're outdoors. It is possible that you may be somewhere and you have to relieve yourself outdoors and there is no bathroom around. Keep in mind, don't face towards Mecca and don't put your back towards Mecca. So as an example, here in the masjid, Mecca is in this direction. So say you're outdoors. So you don't relieve yourself this way. And don't relieve yourself this way. Rather you face this way to where Mecca is either on your right side or Mecca is on your left side. It's on your sides. So anytime you're outdoors and you're relieving yourself, make sure Mecca is to your right or to your left. Not in front of you nor behind you. And this is out of respect for the direction of prayer. That you do not face Mecca when relieving yourself, nor do you turn your back towards Mecca when relieving yourself. Our last class benefits from the biographies of the mothers of the believers, and we're still covering benefits from the life of Sauda bin Zama'ah. anha. The second wife of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. As we covered, he married her after the death of Khadija. And he lived with her for three years uh, in Mecca, just him and her. And then when he migrated to Medina, this is when... Uh, the marriage with Aisha was finalized or consummated and Aisha, she moved with the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. But we covered that the proposal of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam was presented to Sauda. And Sauda radiallahu anha she had mentioned to Khawla bint Hakim to go to her father and present the proposal of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam to her father. As in the times of old, this was the correct way to do things. And in Islam, this is the correct way to do things. That it is the father who marries his daughter off to the surah. And a woman is not to marry herself off, nor is 
a woman to marry another woman off. So when Khawla bin Hakim, she went to the father of Sauda, and he was an older man at the time. And he did not go to Hajj, he had remained behind. And she greeted him with the greeting of Jahiliyyah, which is an indication that the father of Sauda was not a Muslim. Showing that in the beginning of the affair, it was allowed for a non-Muslim father to marry off his Muslim daughter. However, this is no longer allowed. It is no longer allowed that a non-Muslim can marry off a Muslim. And why is that? This is based upon the statement of Allah Azza wa Jal وَلَنْ يَجْعَلَ اللَّهِ لِلْكَافِرِينَ عَلَى الْمُؤْمِنِينَ السَّبِيلًا And that Allah will never make a way for the disbelievers over the believers. And this verse or this statement of Allah entails other meanings. But this verse or the statement of Allah, the scholars they use to show that it is not allowed for a non-Muslim to be the guardian over a Muslim woman. So the Muslim women who do not have male relatives who are unlawful for them, meaning like a father, uncle, brother, grandfather, son who is of age and maturity, if they do not have this and they are in the Muslim countries, then the Muslim authority becomes the guardian over her. So she will go to the courts, there will be a judge of the likes to represent her. In the lands of the non-Muslims, the Muslim women who do not have Muslim guardianship then the masjid will stand in as the representative for the sister. In any event, a sister is not to get married without a guardian. 
as the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam he stated, "La nikaha illa biwali," that there is no marriage except by way of a guardian. And the responsibility of a guardian is to look after the interests of the woman, just as a father will look after the interests of his daughter. A brother will look after the interests of his sister. A son will look after the interests of his mother. Likewise, those who are in the positions of being the guardians over the woman in the community, they have to look after the interests of the sister and not take advantage of the sister. So the father he said, "Man hadhihi? Who is this?" Called Khawla bint Hakim. She said, "I am Khawla, the daughter of Hakim." Called Fama Shatnuki. He said, "What is your affair? Like, what have you come for?" Called Arsalani Muhammad ibn Abdullah. Akhtubu alayhi sauda. She said, "Muhammad." Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam The son of Abdullah He has sent me To propose to Sauda On his behalf Qala Kuf'un kareem Wa ma'da taqool Sahibatuki Qala tuhibbu thak The father responded He is a man that is sufficient for her and noble. What has your friend, your companion said? Meaning, what has Sauda said about this? Khawla said she will love that. Meaning she will love to be married to the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. A point of benefit here. The character of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam was known. That he was a man who was sufficient in taking care of a woman, and he was noble and honorable. And this is how we as men should be. That whenever we are putting ourselves forward to marry a woman we should make sure that we have these characteristics number one that we are in a position to maintain this woman and to take care of her and sustain her by the permission of Allah and secondly, that we are noble and honorable men who will honor this woman and not oppress her, who would be a source of benefit for the woman and not a source of harm. 
men who come into the lives of women and will, will be an improvement. Bringing something to the table. Not men who become a liability upon the woman or a burden upon the woman. Men who are abusive and oppressive verbally, emotionally, mentally, physically. These things are not from the characteristics of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. As marriage in Islam is a serious affair, one should not take it lightly. So the father, he asked, what has your companion said? Meaning, what's her view on the situation? And Khawla responded that she will love that. So he said, call her for me and she called her and he said ay bunayya my daughter inna hadhihi taz'um anna muhammad ibn abdullah ibn abdul muttalib qad arsala yakhtubuki wa huwa kuf'un karimun atuhibbina an an uzawwijaki bi qalat na'am so the man he brought his daughter Oh, when his daughter came, he said to her, Oh, my daughter, this woman is claiming that Muhammad, the son of Abdullah, the son of Abdul Muttalib, has, uh, has sent her on his behalf to propose to you. And he is a man who is sufficient and he is noble. Do you love or you desire that I marry you to him? She said, yes. In Islam, barakallahu feekum, there is no forced marriages. This is not allowed. Before a man can marry a woman off, or a father marries his daughter off, that her permission has to be sought. As Islam, it has great concern for the rights of the woman. As for that which takes place in some cultures, this is not to be attributed to Islam. We have the narration on the authority of Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu. أن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم قال لا تنكحوا الأيم حتى تستأمر ولا تنكح البكر حتى تستأذن قالوا يا رسول الله كيف إذنها قال أن تسكت Abu Huraira, he mentioned that the Prophet ﷺ stated that a woman who has been previously married, 
she is not to be married until she is consulted. A woman, you have to go to her and speak to her. Yeah, you consult her, and you can't just marry her off. Yeah, you know, even though uh, you're the father, even though you're the uncle, even though you're the grandfather, or you're the brother, or you're the son, and you're responsible for her. And this hadith also shows that even though a woman has been married before, she still has a guardian. The woman is not to be married, meaning her guardian is not to marry her off until he consults her regarding this affair. And the virgin is not to be married off until her permission is sought. The Sahaba, they said, O Messenger of Allah, what is her permission? How do we know she has given permission? The Prophet ﷺ said that she is silent. And what this means is that normally, from due to the shyness of a virgin, she may not want to speak, but she, she's quiet. And that shows that she's a, she agrees. Unless she is a mute. <laughs> and she doesn't speak. No, subhanAllah, you'd be, you'd be surprised. These things are mentioned in the books of, of, of Fifth and stuff. They say, if she's a mute, and then she starts crying, that's an indication like she doesn't want it. Yeah. Or she writes no, or, or the likes. Yeah. Right. But the, the point is that the, even though the father is responsible for his daughter, he can't just go marry her off. Mm. We have another narration on the authority of Khansa bint Khudam al Ansariya. أَنَّ أَبَاهَا زَوَّجَهَا وَهِيَ ثَيِّبٌ فَكَرِهَتْ ذَلِكَ فَأَتَتْ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ فَرَدَّ نِكَاحَهَا This narration is on the authority of Khansa, the daughter of Khudam al-Ansariya, that her father married her off while she was a woman who had been previously married, and she disliked that marriage. So she came to the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and complained and the Prophet revoked her marriage. She wasn't in agreement. Another narration on the authority of Ibn Abbas Anna Jariya Bikran Atat Nabiya Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam Fadakarat Lahu Anna Abaha Zawajaha Wahiya Kariha Fakhayyaraha Nabiya Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam on the authority of Abdullah ibn Abbas, that there was a young virgin girl who came to the Prophet ﷺ and mentioned that her father married her off while she disliked to be married to the man she was married to. So the Prophet ﷺ gave her the choice to either stay in the marriage or to leave the marriage. There's another narration in which a father had married his daughter off before she had reached uh, puberty. And then once she reached the state of puberty, she was to be with a man. So she asked the Prophet ﷺ about this. And the Prophet ﷺ gave her the choice to leave the marriage. And she said she didn't want to leave the marriage. She just wanted to know the ruling so that the other woman... If this happens to them, they know what to do. And that is, if the father marries his daughter off when she is young, meaning contract, 
For instance, I have a daughter. My daughter is five years old. You have a son who's five years old. We make a contract. I said, okay, I marry my daughter. I marry my daughter to your son. They're married, even at the age of five. But they, of course, there's no consummation of the marriage. They're young. There's nothing has taken place. But now, when they reach fifteen, this is the agreement. I'm gonna marry my daughter to your son right now. My daughter is the wife of your son, but when they reach 15, they can live together. This is a contract. It stands. Once the girl reaches 15, she has the choice now to stay in that situation or to leave. Because a marriage cannot be forced upon her without her agreement. No. I have Now, and this is a great question that you are asking. If the father does not approve of the, the man who is proposing, it's his right to reject the man. But it should be for a justified reason. He sees the man, the man is not religious. He says no. He says no. He sees the man, he's aware that the man has been previously married before and his man was abusive in those marriages. He says no. Or he sees that the man doesn't have his affairs together. And that his life is in chaos. He may be he may be a nice person, but he doesn't have his situation. He's not stable. The father says no. Or the father he sees the man. He's a good person, but he knows this brother's personality, and he knows his daughter's personality. It won't work. The father says no. These are justified reasons. And these are justified reasons. We have a narration though, and this is very important. And this narration is on the authority of Abu Hatim al Muzani. Qala qala Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Ida jaakum man tardona deenahu wa khuluqa. فَأَنْكِحُوهُ إِلَّا تَفْعَلُوا تَكُنْ فِتْنَةٌ فِي الْأَرْضِ وَفَسَادٌ كَبِيرٌ If there comes to you a man that you are pleased with his religion and you are pleased with his character, marry him. Meaning marry him to your daughter, your sister, your mother, the one, the woman that you are responsible for. Marry him off to them. If you don't do this, there's going to be fitna in the land. And there's going to be a great corruption. Meaning that here it is, you have a man that's suitable. His deen, mashallah, is a good Muslim and he has good character. He suffices your daughter, he suffices your sister, your mother, your aunt. 
the woman that you are responsible for, but you turn them away. You don't have a justified reason to turn them away. The prophet is warning against that, that if you do this, this can lead to corruption. This can lead to, now this man being rejected, and then he goes and commits zina. Or the daughter goes and runs off with the man and goes commit zina anyway, or the likes. So this is a, a warning to the guardians, to the fathers, to the uncles, and those who are in the position of being guardians, that when there comes an individual who is suitable, he has good religion, good character, he's able to take care of his wife, then don't stand in the way. Marry her off to the man. If not, as the Prophet said, Illa tafalu takun fitna fil arb kabir. If you don't do this, then there will be fitna in the earth in great corruption. No. So the father he asked Soda Do you love that I marry you to him? She said yes. So then he said, call him, meaning call the Messenger Sallallahu call the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam came and then he married him to her. He married him, the father married the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam to Sauda. Her brother, Abd ibn Zam'ah, he was making Hajj at the time and he came after. And then when he heard about the marriage, he started to throw dirt upon his head. Meaning he wasn't in agreement. Because he wasn't a Muslim at the time. So he didn't want his sister to marry the Prophet Wasallam because he's looking at it as that's a different, that's a different religion than our forefathers. And he's taking her away from our way, our customs and traditions. Then later on, he had accepted Islam. And he said, by my life, or by your life, excuse me, I was a fool on the day I threw the dirt upon my, upon my head that the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam married Sauda bin Zam'ah. Meaning he regretted what he did. Because later on, he becomes a Muslim. His, his sister has the best husband that a woman can have in the Messenger Sallallahu So he felt regret for what he did. But the point that we get from this is that those who are not Muslims, at times they have a hatred for Islam due to them not understanding Islam. Due to them thinking that Islam is a way of life that doesn't improve your life or it turns the people away from their customs or it comes to uh, do away with everything from the times of old and 
So for this reason, people, they want to hold on to their customs. People, they want to hold on to their traditions. And Islam has not come to change anything of, of the customs and the traditions of the people, except that which is harmful. Except that which goes against what Allah has revealed. Those things are changed. Other than that, then the customs and the traditions of the people, they remain intact. As long as these customs and traditions do not go against Islam. If they are un-Islamic, then in this case, yes, these customs are not to be practiced. But the point is that you have from amongst the non-Muslims, those who have a hatred for Islam due to their ignorance of what is Islam. And if they were to know the truth of Islam and the beauty of Islam, they will accept Islam and will be from the best of the Muslims. How many of us at one point in time, prior to being Muslims, we had a dislike for Muslims? And then once we read about Islam or someone sat and explained Islam to us, the truth entered into our hearts and we accepted it. And we love our religion. Not me, but... No, you have people. Yeah. Alhamdulillah, this is not everyone's situation. Some people... people yeah, that's what I say. Some people, alhamdulillah, they were... Are raised as Muslims, and this is a good thing. But you have some people, they were Christians prior, they were Buddhists prior, and being indoctrinated with the doctrine of Christianity or Buddhism or Judaism is against Islam. So a person, because of how he was raised, he already has taken a position against Islam, not knowing anything about Islam from its proper sources. But then once the person learns about the truth of Islam, subhanAllah, the heart and the chest expands and is open and the person becomes a Muslim. This happens. But the point again from here, the brother, he was, he was upset that his sister married the Prophet wasallam. He began to throw dirt upon his head. But then when he became a Muslim, he said to himself, I was a fool on the day I threw dirt upon my head because the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi married Sauda. Because after becoming a Muslim, he sees the great benefit now in his sister being married to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam as the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam was the best of the men. InshaAllah Ta'ala we will stop at this point. Whatever is correct, the praise is for Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala alone. Whatever is correct, the praise is for Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala alone. Whatever is incorrect, it is from myself and the shaitan. Subhanak Allahumma bihamdik ashhadu an la ilaha illa anta astaghfiruka wa atubu ilaik assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh